0: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world.
1: It's the office worker of the future who may have to face not only a change of work style, but a change of workplace.
2: That's because the office of the future, already called a workstation, is so self-contained that it can exist almost anywhere, provided there's a telephone and electrical supply and far more of us could be working from home by 1981.
0: That's a clip from BBC's 1979 documentary series, Tomorrow's World. While work styles and workplaces have changed dramatically since 1979, work is still work, and it still occupies most of our waking hours. Historian Benjamin Hunnicutt has called the push for more free time, the forgotten American dream. Somewhere along the way, the pursuit of that happiness was replaced by the idea that work and wealth are ends in themselves. What does the future of work really hold? And who is thinking expansively about how to shape that future with workers in mind? In this episode, we'll discuss the pros and cons of a New York City bill proposing a four-day work week. Hear a vision of the future from speculative fiction writer, Carlos Delgado, and check our answering machine.
3: In America, we have this culture of work and the need to work until, you know, the wheels fall off. Workforce participation has to rise from its all-time modern lows. People need to work longer hours, longer hours, longer hours.
4: Americans already work more than any other industrialized country, on average 47 hours a week.
3: We've established a five-day work week decades ago. I mean, it's, it's just outdated at this point, right? The five-day work week has come out from the production of vehicles. It's come out of the Industrial Revolution. There was a time in America where you work six, seven days a week, and they said, listen, we need to have a more balanced work life. I think it's time for employees to take a little more power and say, listen, we can provide the same amount of output. We can receive the same amount of wages and still do this in a four-day work. you on in a lower hourly setting. My name is Kenny Burgos. I am the New York City Assembly member for the 85th District in the Bronx. Those are the neighborhoods of Harding Park, Soundview, Classen Point, Hunts Point. One of the big things that I think came out of COVID-19 was people really reimagining what does work look like, really questioning what it is they want to get out of their job and also that work-life balance. So it prompted me to, look, to work with my team and look into a bill and seeing how we can really move forward in in implementing, you know, what many have deemed the 4-day work week here in New York. So my bill would propose changing the overtime law here in New York. It's a creative solution in, in trying to push for a 4-day work week where we now have a overtime gets triggered at 40 hours, right, which basically breaks down to five eight-hour workdays. So my bill would push, you know, companies and employers to implement a four-day eight-hour workday being a 32-hour work week. The bill right now is still in its infancy, to be honest. I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, we can't do this overnight. You have to kind of bring this in slowly. So we're having conversations with, with tons of people from unions, to employers, to employees, to uh, other stakeholders, to see and make sure we can get this right. But I'm hoping we can get it done in the next few years.
5: Like everybody, I grew up with the assumption that working more meant that you would be more productive, more successful, et cetera. And we've all grown up in an era in which overwork looks like the norm. It really seems kind of inevitable and inescapable. I'm Alex Pong. I am a director at 4DB Global which is a nonprofit that helps companies move to four-day work weeks without cutting salaries or output or customer service. And it's been, I think, increasingly challenging to think about alternatives to it. In a world in which all of our captains of industry or you know super successful entrepreneurs have these stories about you know working 90 hour weeks and sleeping under their desks, et cetera.
2: Last time I was here, I actually stepped literally on the floor because the couch was too narrow.
5: Yeah, I was gonna say.
0: And Elon, I have to say it's not even a comfortable couch either.
1: No, it's terrible. This is a, not a good couch. The is internet is aghast and maybe even agog at the couch Elon Musk sleeps on when he works late at Tesla.
5: And it started he me thinking him. that actually You know maybe in order to do really really good work the key to it was not to find ways of working ever longer hours but maybe it was about figuring out how to work less and to make more time for things that seemed unproductive but helped us be creative Richard Nixon, of all people, in 1956, when he was running for re-election as vice president, gave a speech about the imminent four-day week as an example of you know, great sort of Republican stewardship of the economy and cooperation between capital and labor, and the superiority of, sort of the capitalist way of life over those overworked socialists in you know, the Soviet Union. The Honorable Richard M. Nixon, said leader in the Republican Party. From New York City, the American Broadcasting Company brings you issues and answers. Most of our work consists of sort of taking groups of companies and through the process of planning shorter work weeks planning trials so that they can kind of test it out for a few months and make sure that it works for them, putting them together also with academics who can get inside these organizations, study them, understand the benefits, but also bring them all together so that they can learn from each other about what's working, what's not, how everyone is solving issues with vacation days or sort of HR policy or something else. The pandemic changed the way that we think about labor in a couple ways, right? You know, first of all, simply the fact that there are millions of people now who are no longer with us because of COVID forced a lot of us to sort of take a pause in you know our busy lives and you know ask. Is the way that we're working giving us the kind of life that we want? And for a lot of people, the answer turned out to be no.
3: You have some people who lost their jobs. You have some people whose job models completely shifted just as a need, and that just opened people's eyes. So I think the pandemic really accelerated what I believe the job market would have hurt, would have gotten to uh, you know maybe in, in a few decades. And I think history will look back and and see that you know that was the biggest catalyst for why we are we are.
5: I think also that going remote forced companies to learn how to use collaborative tools, how to communicate better, how to do a whole bunch of things that turned out to enable their shift to a four-day week. The four-day week is amazing as a tool for solving a whole bunch of problems simultaneously for giving entrepreneurs and founders themselves or of permission to slow down a little bit to have more rest, you know, helps them make their own lives more sustainable, makes their workers' lives more sustainable, and makes their companies more sustainable.
3: There are many companies that have taken this to pilot. There have been countries like Ireland, New Zealand, UK has piloted this in in some of their sectors, and a lot of them have seen the same results. They've seen, uh, if not the same production, a higher production. I've seen higher morale, Higher staff retention. Uh, so I think it's a great opportunity to, to try this now here in America. The five day work week is just long outdated and it's time to move forward. Friday, 1 24 p.m.
6: I believe it was in early January 2021, our executive director decided to implement a four day work week. My name is Ashley Nelson. I'm the Director of Communications at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, which is the only global network of historic sites, museums, memory initiatives that used past struggles to address social justice issues today. I've been working here about seven years, and it's a staff, predominantly female staff. It's woman-led. And so I think that was a big factor, I think, in deciding to go to the four-day week. I think there are a lot of benefits especially for for women with that schedule. But I think our staff felt like many just burned out like they were just juggling too many things in too tight a space and everything was lacking energy, you know, our enthusiasm for just our general lives but also our work lives and I think we we felt burned out and well, our executive director, Elizabeth Silks, proposed the idea. We did a pilot program and it was a six month pilot. And at the end of that, it was just unanimous. <laughs> we all really for it and, and we continued it. And it's been great. I mean, on a personal and professional level, I have, I have so appreciated it. I'm a single mother with two teenage daughters. We have staff with younger children, older children, but we also have you know, staff with no children, but who still need time to sort of care for themselves or care for elder parents. We have staff who are going to school, who are attempting to get a master's or a BA. And that is all, you know, part of life and, and we need to be able to fulfill those duties too. It was never lost in us that we work in human rights. I think for some women, honestly, that feels so torn between taking care of children and, you know, work life. It can be the difference, I think, between having a job and not having a job. At least two Fridays a month, I try to do something fun. So I will have lunch with a friend or I'll go to a museum or I will do something that's like very intentionally focused on me. <laughs> you know, or just kind of lightening my load a little bit. And then, you know, at other times, though, it will be taking the car to get an oil change. Or I'm doing all of those things with bills that have piled up or you know, it's just taking care of that stuff that just made life stressful. So now it's very handy to have just like, okay, here's a four or five hour window where I can just take care of stuff.
3: I think the pros highly outweigh the cons at this point. You know, with that time, you're able to make more healthy decisions, maybe get more time outside, go to the gym, spend more time with your family, and your kids. And there's an environmental impact. You know, when you have one day less of 330 million Americans, you know, potentially not traveling to work, maybe not getting in their car, you know, just lowering their overall carbon footprint, maybe because they stay home that day. And, th- and there's cost savings, too, you know, for employers themselves. You know, we're seeing some employers now not even opting to take space in office buildings but let's just think for the fact that they may, just, they may just need less space overall right now employers are doing everything they can to attract talent to retain talent because the reality is people are changing careers changing their jobs because another employer is offering them better salary better incentives a better work-life balance so companies have to care and they have to pay attention if they want their company to thrive and to to be prosperous in this capitalist economy
6: the subject of labor is wide and deep. And it's not a surprise, is that labor, you know, in some ways is everything. It's a huge chunk of your life. Especially in the United States, when healthcare and so many benefits are connected to full-time, five-day-a-week employment. You should be able to have health care without driving yourself insane with work and work hours. Um, and your children should be able to. And so it is definitely, I think, a labor rights issue.
5: Someone said that the four-day week was the personal jetpack of the labor movement. That it's something that people have been talking about for ages, but had never come to pass. It's less about what your revenues are, or how old your company is, or how big it is. Having leadership who is committed to trying this, that's open to doing new things, that has a kind of experimental mindset, that's the thing I think that really is crucial. If you've got that then you can make everything else work.
4: Hi, my name is Alicia Bagat, and I work at an organization called Forum for the Future. We are a global sustainability nonprofit, and I am the futures lead. So I use kind of futures and foresight tools to help organizations think long-term about how to create a more just and regenerative future. When I think about work in the future, one of the things that we in the futures community look at are things called signals of change. And signals of change are basically seemingly small changes that are happening today that point to potentially paradigm-shifting change that could happen in the future. So I think with the future of work, there's a lot of signals that we are seeing today around things like the great resignation, a greater focus on mental health, a greater focus on work-life balance that have kind of come through. And I think we haven't quite worked out all the kinks with the shift towards remote working And I'm particularly talking about white-collar jobs here. I I know organizations facing a lot of turnover and cities somewhat in crisis as to where are all these white-collar workers living now if, if cities are no longer the hubs of those office workers. Automation is huge. And we see that there's sophisticated ways in which automation can take the place of humans in a variety of jobs, including things that we thought could not be automated, like medical services. I think also there is the larger proportion of the population that is aging or doesn't want to work or cannot work than I think in the past where there was a, a lot younger population and there was this idea that we'd have like constantly have far more young workers than we have older people. And that's kind of being flipped in a lot of countries in the world. I don't know if it'll be as grim as as robots taking our our jobs. I, I went to a, a presentation about social robots recently and caregiving robots post-COVID, and I think that we still have a long way to go before those robots are good enough to take away human caregiver jobs. The Diaspora Future Collective is a group that I started convening during COVID, it is a group of people who self-identify as uh, people of color and are somehow involved in futurist work, be they artists or designers, futurists like myself that work kind of more on a corporate level, or people who work within a corporation as a futurist and might create speculative scenarios and, and do work internally. So the group was kind of founded to say that, hey, you know, there aren't a lot of people like us who are driving mainstream narratives about the future and how can we kind of form our own group to, to do that, to examine those mainstream narratives and to also have kind of a safe space for community building. Decolonizing the Future is about examining the uh, power imbalances left by colonial legacies in major global systems. And trying to identify those with the idea of creating preferred futures. So creating futures that, you know, where we can take out the things that no longer serve us in the kind of more just and regenerative world that we're trying to build and, and really think thoughtfully about, you know, if we're replicating those power imbalances or if we are actively fighting against them. One of the first projects I worked on was around a sustainable tea sector. So looking at tea, and there's a number of certifications for tea around organic tea, fair trade certified tea. And so looking at that and kind of addressing some of these, you know, what is the future of the sector? What do do consumers want in the future? And like, where are the trends headed? But then also taking a step back and saying, you know, wait a minute, this whole sector is created on a plantation labor system in which people are generational workers, you know, how could this sector be sustainable if this is how the labor system is organized? So, thinking about what what would that mean? Would we even have tea in the future if we didn't have plantations providing tea? And and would it be automated? Unearthing some of those questions is kind of key to the the idea of, of decolonizing that particular sector. But that's just an example to show what kind of the idea of of decolonizing is when applied to the future and how we might think about it.
1: Stand clear of the closing doors, please.
2: This is the Kaleidocast. Hello, Midnight. James Earl King here, the only one bringing the speculative fiction stories that eat, sleep, and dream of Brooklyn. This is dangerous, hungry work that doesn't get easier no matter how long I've been in the game, and I'm like everybody else out chasing that paper, trying to carve a little happiness into space-time, and everybody's got to eat. So I just ordered a fresh story, special deliveries from Carlos Delgado's, a new place opened up on Flatbush and Lincoln a couple months ago. Let's see what's in the bag. Mmm. Mmm. A future flavor, but with a touch of that old-school spice, the kind of magic you won't find on the other side of the Washington Bridge. Kinda wish you could be in the studio with me, so you can smell what I smell, taste what I taste. The best I can do
1: is let you listen. Special deliveries by Carlos Luis Delgado, narrated by Wilson Fowley. The Epicurious app dispatched Juan Lazaro all over Brooklyn. Of all the delivery zones, he tried avoiding East Bush Sty the most. Bad traffic, worse tips, and blinding e-murals advertising 8-, 9-, and 10-bedroom lofts available today. But some nights, disappointment was the only thing on the menu. His customers seemed to agree. "'This is unacceptable,' she said the moment she opened the door. "'You're late. Is the food even warm?' Juan wasn't late, and the e-bike's storage kept deliveries warm, but there was no point arguing. With all those fast-fashioned wood elf mods, pointed ears and golden hair vines included, she didn't look like much of a tipper. Still, he handed her a bag of lembus and hummus from Elrond's Mediterranean restaurant and said, "'Order for... Eoleothanathel? Juan's smartwatch buzzed against his wrist." He stifled a yawn, another customer wanting an overpriced fantasy-themed meal in the middle of the night. How long since he last slept? It was micro-hurricaning and 3 a.m., and Juan had a wife, Marta, waiting for him, a wife with three rounds of antivirals left and 2,000 credits short of covering the next one. Juan tapped accept and turned as wish.com Galadriel slammed her door shut. Of course, no tip. His sigh threatened to drag him to the floor, But Juan shook it off, made the sign of the cross, and headed out into the night. Rain pelted his plastic poncho as Juan pulled up to a medieval revivalist condo overlooking the East River. Lightning split the sky, and he wondered how a stone tower was considered luxurious. Concern only crept in the moment his customer answered the door. Sickly sweet fumes filled the hallway. Juan didn't understand why some people were obsessed with death. His cousin Anna was goth, but she only went as far as wearing black wedding dresses every day. But this customer must have paid a fortune to wither himself down to jerky. "'Order for Chad Thule?' Juan asked. Chad Thule glared, with eyes made to look like two green flames burning in empty sockets. His voice rasped as if he'd swallowed a pound of sand. The few words Juan caught weren't English or Spanish. Juan held out the bag. "'Garlic crumble phoenix wings?' The aroma of garlic and herbs pouring from the hot bag didn't mix well with the rancid hallway stench. The skeletal customer hissed, recoiling from the outstretched bag. The holotorches lining the hallway dimmed, and a sudden chill bit through Juan Lazaro's thermals. "'Fool!' his customer said. "'I have a phoenix allergy!' Juan's lizard brain screamed for him to run. He eyed the distance between him and the elevator. "'I'm sorry?' "'I did not order this. "'I ordered rat tartare from Sepulchre on Bedford Avenue.'" The restaurant bot packed the wrong order, and now Juan had a pissed-off customer and no tip. Another wasted night instead of spending it with his sick wife. "'What the hell was the point of working yourself to death if—' "'Are you all right?' Chad Thull rasped. Juan looked up from the stone floor, unclenching his shaking fist. "'Yes,' he lied. I'm sorry for the mix-up. If you contact the app, they'll refund your money. Do you still want the order? He held out the bag. No, Chad Thule said. That's okay. I I was really looking forward to the rat. Juan considered the disappointment crinkling Chad Thule's face. You know, if you like rat, Juan whispered, you'll, um, die for Ambato's bounty on Metropolitan. Nobody roasts rodents like them. I'll put an order in for you. They deliver. I'll make sure they give you a discount. Chad Thule's modded eyes flared with hope, then he disappeared around the door. The app on Juan's phone flashed delivery complete, and a hefty tip. Enough to cover Marta's next round of antivirals. Juan gasped, collected himself, and shouted, Hey, thank you so much. Chad Thule reappeared. The slightest trails of smoke trickled out from his green flaming eyes. I would love the mods. Juan added. Uh, very spooky. Chad Thule smiled, and what must have been artisanally sharpened teeth gleamed yellow. I apologize for my previous outburst, he said. Phoenix meat cures wounds, and, well, look at me. But rat. Someone or something groaned from inside the penthouse. You can keep the wings, Chad Thule said, then slammed the door shut. Juan Lazaro shuddered and turned to leave. In Brooklyn, The later it gets, the weirder it gets. But staying out for that last delivery had been worth it. Juan Lazaro called his sister-in-law at Ambato's Bounty and put in the rich goth's order. Chad Thule thought he was getting rat delivered, but really, it was guinea pig. An Ecuadorian specialty. Carlos Luis Delgado is a Brooklyn-based speculative fiction writer and editor. He leads workshops for the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers and is always looking for new classes to take. He's been previously published as part of My Father's Files, a mystery horror podcast. This is his second publication. Wilson Fowley lives in a suburb of Vancouver, Canada, and has been reading aloud since the age of four. His life has changed recently. He lost his wife to cancer, and he changed jobs from programming to recording voiceovers for instructional videos, which he loves doing but not as much as he loved Heather.
2: Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast.nyc, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. This episode was produced by Rob Cameron and engineered by Christopher Lazaric. Our intro music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. If you like what you hear, please leave a message on iTunes or our website.
7: Hey, what's up? My name is Muhammad Floyd, I'm 30 years old from Mount Vernon, New York. I am a digital media mentor at a nonprofit, and when I'm not doing that, I'm a freelance filmmaker and photographer. At my main job, what I do is create curriculum, teach, and mentor young black and brown youth who want to get careers in the creative industry. And when I'm not doing that, I'm working in the commercial, documentary, and sports spaces as a photographer and filmmaker. So this is the first time ever I've been in a full-time job where they implemented a four-day work week. The only real adjusting that I had to do was making sure that I finished all deliverables and work within those four days. Because I definitely didn't want it to spill into my nice three-day weekend. Instead of like getting a project or getting an assignment... And just like making it last an entire five days for no reason. It forces me to make sure I use my time wisely. I don't know about other people. But sometimes you know people take work home. Because they need to finish it. And they couldn't finish it at work. I don't like doing that. So knowing that I have only four days to do everything. It makes me want to finish everything faster honestly. But also on another end. With Friday almost acting like a buffer to the weekend, sometimes I'll take that Friday because I work salary. I'll take that Friday and actually work on stuff before the week starts because I work a salary. So whether it's five days or four days, I get paid the same amount regardless. It definitely does save them money in the way of like upkeep and maintenance of a physical space. So because we're not all in an office, On that Friday, save money on electricity, water, gas, maintenance, and cleaning one less day. That's not going to be a regular thing for every kind of job out there. Recognize my privilege, right? I work in a small nonprofit that deals in a space of creativity. Um, It's convenient for us, and we're allowed to do that. My bosses are really great people that care about us as humans. Not every job is like that. And I don't think there's any disadvantage to the employer with a four-day work week because if you look at productivity from workers, people do most of the work in a day within a few hours instead of the whole eight hours. Because of our society, we're able to do more work in less time when compared to decades ago. So an eight-hour work day or 40-hour work week, isn't really efficient. After a certain amount of time, people aren't going to create more work if you give them more time. They're really just twiddling their thumbs or talking by the water fountain or just bugging people at work um, because they have literally time to kill. What's great about a four-day work week is that people can actually live their life. And at my job, they do things to support the employees as humans and not just support the employees to keep them happy, to keep working at some place. Because I'm off, I can run errands and hang out with friends. So it's really helpful to my work-life balance, which is helpful for my mental health. If I'm able to easily work on creative projects that fuel me as a creative, I get to talk to my family more because I'm not super exhausted you know, you have your family coming home from work, don't want to talk to anybody. So I can actually get to just hang out with my mom more now because I have the Friday off. They may never experience or have the opportunity for a four-day work week. And that's because living in a capitalistic society where capitalists, right, are making profit off of humans in the human lives, a four-day work week doesn't make sense to them. I want to see, People actually have a work life balance. I want to see ways where employers are not exploiting their employees. And unfortunately, in a capitalist society, it's promoted for employers to exploit their employees. So, for the future, I hope to see there's a different system for us as a people. The four day work week is a larger conversation to how we are treated as humans within the workplace. And that is always a conversation. And that is a conversation that needs to continuously happen until people are given the rights that they are owed at the workplace and not treated as commodities to just make money off of them and then discard them when they're unusable. That just doesn't make sense and it's not right.
0: U.S.A. is produced by me, Kyrell Palmer,
1: and me, Emily Bogosian, and me,
0: Shirin Barghi, and me, Charlie Hoxie, and me, Bayimi Sato, with help this week from Alicia Bagat, Mohammed Floyd, Rob Cameron, Brad Parks, James Earl King, Carlos Luis Delgado, Christopher Lazarek, and the Kaleidocast podcast, Alex Pong is the author of the books Shorter, Rest, and Distraction Addiction. You can follow him on Twitter at A-S-K-P-A-N-G. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscience is a global network of historic sites connecting the past to today's movements. Check them out on Instagram at Sites of Conscience. You can follow Alicia Bhagat on Twitter at Alicia Bhagat. And learn about the Diaspora Futures Collective on her website, www.alishabegat.com. To learn more about Kaleidocast, a podcast from the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers Group, visit www.kaleidocast.nyc and check the show's notes for a link to support their Patreon. To view Muhammad Floyd's photography and videos, visit mfloyd.work. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on the podcast, check the show's notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we've missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all of Brick Radio podcasts, visit www brickartsmedia.org slash radio.